Hello and welcome to episode number eight of the Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. Today, my co-host Alessia Dovgaluk and I, Oli Malimov, had the most fascinating discussion with Beeman Najika Lianagia, innovator and entrepreneur from Sri Lanka, member of the World Economic Forum Global Shapers Initiative and Forbes 30 Under 30. Among some of his project innovations include finger braille interface that allows blind people to perceive and communicate information about colors. Another one, a smart condom that can trigger blood flow and send health data to a smartphone application, which also won a Durex competition in 2015. His work truly impresses with its acute vision and responsiveness to modern societal challenges. As we have learned from this interview, Beeman's philosophy of work and creation lies in taking often overlooked problems and finding solutions that would be easily available to the general public to use. Using this philosophy as a compass, we followed Beeman's personal story in China and picked his mind on the present and the future of development in Eurasia, including his home country, Sri Lanka. All this always accompanied by the stories of Beeman's projects and initiatives from various sectors, from healthcare to education, turned our discussion into a rich and reflective deliberation that we're thrilled to share with you today. Enjoy. Beeman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. Beeman, when you're asked uh, what you do, you usually explicitly reply, I build stuff. What is the favorite thing you have built in your life and what are you working on right now? So I think like uh, I like solving problems that people overlook sometimes so because of its complexity or like uh, it's not affecting the masses. So if you say like what I built that I really like the most is actually my first invention in China, which is actually a pair of gloves that I built for deaf and blind children so that you can help them see the world through vibration. So because that is the first invention that I did in China and that kind of changed my life here for the past 12 years. And what I'm working on right now, so I work on a couple of things. Uh, Wearables-wise, uh, a sensor that can actually measure your breathing real-time to help you to identify when you need to change your mask, to a suit that can measure your body in 3D. And uh, other than that, emotion AI that can understand, like, you know, how you feel, your moods, your expressions through voice and face, uh, to a bunch of other stuff. Can you talk a little bit about more about your inventions, uh, especially when it comes to your first invention here in China? How did it impact those children that w you were targeting? So it impacted because when I started the research, it was early 2008. And then again, uh, how it impacted was like, you know, there was no devices like that for masses or like the technology was not out there by that time. So how it impacted was like we created the first wave. I would say. So like, you know, that time I was a researcher. So the the most advanced thing or the most uh, interesting thing that time to do is like create a path that has not been created before. So that's like, you know, how you start research. So how it impacted because the 
the project was open sourced so that like you know people actually can build on top of it and uh, it was the first time actually we were trying to translate color color content information into purely to vibration through touch of sense so the project's name was touch of hope so the tagline was like for the people that who lost hope where touch is the only hope so that's how we started it and it went to the market uh, it didn't go to the market it was a research paper and like a project that we did and um, i did actually uh, it uh, i won the first prize in china for the innovation competition so that that's how you start uh, building things and in 2008 how old were you 17 17 years old and you produced that paper as soon as you came to china yes that's quite and i wonder how what what you were like when you were a child did you always like building stuff uh yeah mostly because when i was child like i liked two things i liked sketching art and then again i liked astronomy a lot so i started like touch my first tel- telescope when i was 7 so i used to combine my skills together so i produced like the first moon map and then again solar map that means like you look at sun for like 2 years every day and then again you sketch uh sunspots and uh, you can create something called a butterfly diagram which actually predicts solar activity and we used to like take telescopes to go to rural areas and show kids like how saturn and how all the other planets through look like a telescope and interestingly we got the third largest telescope to high school in sri lanka and uh, in 2008 when you came to china did you speak any chinese no okay so few widespread communication or navigation apps adapted for foreigners back in the day right so how did you adapt here in china what was your first feeling when you came here and why did you come to china so i came to china because i when i was super young i like i said i really love building stuff but if you want to build something in sri lanka like if you have few hardware shops like few places that you can go and buy the things to like actually build and uh, then you easily realize that where are these things coming from so most of them are coming from china so why don't you be in the place where you have the access for these resources the most easiest way so that was one choice the second choice was like you know when i was reading quite a lot then i realized that china was going to move to a very interesting angle for the next coming 10 years in terms of going from a manufacturing economy to more innovation driven economy so i wanted to be in the place where things were happening and um, When I first came here I did not speak any language and at the same time there was no widespread applications I didn't even have a mobile phone when I came here so you can uh, understand we had to go back to basics so it was not finding your friends through WeChat it you had to go to the English corner or else like you need to go to the Chinese corner in the university and find Chinese friends talk to them and then again this is how we actually like started meeting people and then again learn more about the culture take the most for like lunches and dinners and get to more about how china works i mean fascinating because usually innovators and those people who build stuff from other countries the first choice is to go to the silicon valley the first choice is to go to the us go to school there right but you decided to come here without a language was the process of adapting once again was it was it tough for you because like that time when i started school mit Corp- open courseware was actually like already published online so like whatever you wanted to learn you could only just go to a web page and learn from best universities in the world and then again you actually can speak english as your first language i can speak five languages right now wow. and i wanted to add like you know chinese to that because then you are learning engineering at the same time you are learning 
the communication medium that you can talk with the other people and china was one of chinese was one of the languages that was getting very widely spread that time so i wanted to have both of those experience like be able to build something and be able to communicate it in another language to someone that was actually building it that was a very forward looking position i think um but over this year since you've seen so many things changing in in chinese text text scene um what would you say are the most fascinating directions in the tech scene in china now so i mean uh, there's definitely ai is one of the biggest directions that is like you know china is moving because it has the strength of data and then again for if you want to do like really good deep learning and machine learning algorithms what you really need is like very diverse set of data which has which has connectivity between each data source and the fascinating directions i would say is that uh, how china is using ai than other countries and especially one of the directions that i'm working on is like identifying human emotions through voice and face so that's like you know humanizing ai or else like you know giving the machines the ability to understand humans better and to have much more meaningful conversations so that people won't feel threatened by tech uh-huh. so that's kind more? of like putting heart in a robot or else like you know letting a robot think more so that for you to do it you need to understand your environment much more better so how can you give a machine the ability to do that is one of the most fascinating directions i've seen uh it's moving other than that of course like this wearables there's all the buzzwords that people are talking about let's talk about vr or ar or like payment gateways to big data to all those things but i have a very different opinion around that it's just uh, what i see is that china china uses tech as a medium to create very innovative business models so for example like you can see companies like ofo and mobike solving the last mile challenge to creating like very efficient quaidi networks in china using a click of a button i can just like send either quaidi from my house to my friend's house or else like you know from my house to like you know a city in guangzhou so technically like being able to give use tech as a medium to create convenience is actually mind blowing here and and can you give us a couple of examples of the projects in in ai that uh, especially in emotions ai yeah, yeah so I would say that like you know one of the projects that we are working on is that using human voice or else like let's say like non invasive technology right so I'm very fascinated about this concept about how can you collect data from people in a very non invasive way so let's say like you know you are in a shared cab and then again you are taking the cab and I want to make sure the people inside the cab is actually very safe and they're secure mm-hmm. right so for me I can put like a camera there to do that but it's actually you're collecting very intense information about people's faces and then again like their identities and it becomes like a problem with privacy but imagine having a microphone there that can i i can understand like you know the conversation dynamics between like the passenger and then like you know the driver and whenever like there's a conversation that should not be happening in the cab is happening at a very elevated emotion levels we can just directly pick it up and like mark it as threats so those kind of uh are one of the one of one one of the examples how we can use emotion ai for like these kind of uh scenarios other than that if you say like e learning or else like where people you want to give education to masses you need to understand like you know concentration whether your content that you are like doing is good enough for example this simple podcast when people are listening we can actually measure our emotions whether we are actually like you know highly attentive or highly focused and we can clearly see that how people are feeling like when they're listening to that so that we can do a better job at creating good content if you look at like you know 
another example, let's say recruitment, right? I can actually like hire the best person by just giving them dynamic scenarios. I can like, you know, see that how people are reacting for questions, how people how people think about a problem. Because everyone is really good at like solving problems. But different people have different methods, different tactics, different flows of solving problems. But that thinking process is really fascinating for a recruiter to see like how is he thinking? Like, you know, why does why is he different from all the other 390 candidates we had so far? And how does he make decisions? Yes, like, is he getting excited? Whether, whether is he thinking, like, this is a boring job? Like, you can actually clearly pick it up from, like, very simple voice voice cues and then, again, very simple eye movements to, like, you know, how your face reacts. And how accurate is it? So right now, like, you know, the accuracies are around, like, 90% up. Ninety percent up. So that's very accurate. Very accurate, because you can see that, like you know, there are many different mediums of doing it. For example, we are working on sensors that using radar to pick your breathing ten meters away from you. So, like these things, no longer people actually have to wear wearables in their hands, and then again collect like simple data points as like how you are sleeping versus like you know like uh, how's your sleep quality to how many steps you've taken because those data has been obsolete right now no one cares about how many steps you take a day because people want more connected data points and then again interfaces that tell you solutions not just shows you graphs for example i'll say that if you're having a baby monitor right and then again you should not show like you know the parent a graph showing like how the temperature changes for the baby's body you should tell whether the baby is comfortable or not mm-hmm. if the baby is not comfortable you should tell the parent exactly just turn down the ac by like you know 2 degrees down and the baby would be comfortable so like you need to be more have actionable insight but with some of the data for instance you mentioned the um the technology to use, for instance, in the application process, isn't the data, for instance, skewed if the person who is being assessed is aware that, that they're being measured? So this is what I talked about non-invasive machinery. Uh-huh. So non-invasive measuring means, like, you know, I actually do the interview or, like, you know, in, in the most comfortable environment for them. But I use technology as a medium to just, like, observe him a far away distance. For example, why, why is this needed? Because when I'm doing an interview with you, maybe you had a bad day today. So that that one hour I gave for you the interview, you actually like maybe you had some really big problem at home. So that the questions that you're maybe you're the best person for that job. But that particular time we did the interview, if we are taking emotions aside, but we should not, that Mm -hmm. all the answers that you're getting is like giving me is biased. So then why, why, how can we just like give you another chance? So if I can identify you have good potential. You can come up with like, you know, these technologies to just like, you know, to identify those people and give them a second chance. It's very interesting because uh, uh, to a common person, it's very difficult to measure emotions, right? Uh, Let's just uh, take ourselves into the uh, DD car here, right? You just mentioned that you're building a technology for taxis, right? Especially in light with what has been going on with uh, DD and some of his drivers and uh, some of the unfortunate events that has happened uh, in the, in the past year, right? Um, now, in China, when you go to any cab, the cab drivers are usually very, very emotional. How can you measure their emotions and let the company know this driver is actually uh, being very emotional or potentially threatening, or he's just speaking very loudly? So this is like, you know, where the deep learning comes into play. 
because like you know if you look at just loudness as a factor then you can't actually pick up emotions so we train our emotion ai based on very interesting data points like we call them features that is related to like you know each emotion so the key thing here is that like you know it's just not like one time thing it's conversation dynamics we actually measure you for like over time to just like make sure the bias is not there maybe you are actually a loud person so from the point a to point z if you're continuously being loud that means like you know that's your personality so emotions actually go from emotions expressions to your personality behavior so you can use these things to just like see how as a person you are performing and then the other most important thing is that if you had a bad experience with the driver most of the time like you know we don't even rate them because it's like mm-hmm. you know too time consuming to click five stars and tell like you know what why why am i not having a good experience there so you can make these rating systems much more automated and the other thing is that we are living in a world that is driven by data and then again we take emotions feelings like all the other things apart from that so a machine cannot see if you don't teach it how to see things beyond data so teaching machines to see beyond data is actually the key thing to make better decisions so you're providing a lot of you you're providing a set of data to the machines right in order for them uh from point a to point z to pick this whole up uh, the, the the entire process and only then they can give you some kind of a result yes interesting now when it comes to china and it's uh uh China as being a country of innovations uh would you think that this has been going on for quite some years or we're just stepping into this uh, uh new time uh where we can consider time to uh, China to be a really innovative country I think like you know China is always about like change leaders and change makers and then again especially when Jack Ma started like Alibaba when no one believed him till to Frank Wang starting DJI and dominating the drone market they've actually like you know proven multiple times continuously that they can innovate the key thing is that like you know other countries outside of china always saw it as like you know manufacturing hub because they thought like you know this is the best place to get something manufactured if right. we tell them the technical know-how but they moved away from that because they've been learning how to manufacture and they're the number one and Now, they're still number 1 number 1 so they want to be the number 1 in like you know invention and innovation also and they've been doing a really great job at that because it's all about people it's not about like you know anything else because the infrastructure is here the ecosystem is here so it's about the people and decisions and then again their directions towards like using those infrastructure using those resources and creating something new and that's the basics of innovation and there are, there are a lot of people in china to to get the data from So um if we look at China now yes it's uh, it, it got on the into the innovation stage there is a great pool of data uh, about the people and for the people but we see that for instance this innovation um environment this digital environment is somehow still if compared to other countries divided from them so China has uh, a largely like self-sustaining um digital environment Do you see with this new innovation age China integrating a little bit more with the regional countries for instance in in the digital environment because I mean we know that China has so many equivalents for the social media for the western social media of its own do you think it's going to integrate a little bit more Yes like you know one of the most easiest examples I can give you is like ByteDance as a company they have a product called Douyin that everyone is like playing quite a lot in China which is similar to like you know Snapchat 
but I can't say it's similar to Snapchat because it's much more better than that. But they actually have the same international brand TikTok, which is widely spread around in like, you know, Malaysia, Southeast Asia and other countries. And when I went to like, you know, Sri Lanka this time, like when I was, I was super amazed by QR codes appearing in restaurants to just like people playing TikTok to all these adaptations. So that I travel quite a lot and I see these changes. And uh, it's really amazing because maybe other countries don't have super apps like WeChat where you can actually pay from your electricity bills to just like split the bill to everything. But it's just because like they're still picking up because the payment gateways in other countries are not centralized as like China it is. So there's so many small players trying to actually like do the same thing, which is very difficult for like restaurant owners. For example, like, you know, there's Paytm, this pay, that pay in so many payment mechanisms so that a restaurant owner should have like multiple different apps to just like accept payment. So all those things getting like centralized into one thing and then again, connected services getting integrated much more into the ecosystems is actually like how Southeast Asian countries are moving into this like gameplay. So I see more QR codes in Asia than I see in Europe and US combined. But the Western markets has actually snubbed the QR codes back in the day, right? And it has picked up here in China. Uh, I I would say that, like, you know, you should not be hardware dependent. Because, like, you know, you can't introduce, like, you know, payments like NFC or Apple Pay. And then you can expect, like, everyone to have that type of, like, a phone with that capability to just to do a payment. Where China actually, like, used a camera to just, like, you know, scan a 2 by 2 QR code and give everyone the accessibility to payment from a beggar to, like, you know, wealthy rich individual. So this is actually the the thing that I see the most different between, like, you know, outside of China and inside of China because whatever that is created here is for all, not for few. But do you think, for instance, that, okay, QR codes can be used elsewhere, they were just not adopted, but do you think that there are some features of the Chinese tech scene that actually can work only in China and that cannot be generated elsewhere in the world? I think like, you know, the the technology or else like, you know, the data AI that is getting applied in like, you know, governance and uh, all the other things, for example, like, you know, from using very advanced technology for like, you know, understanding human behavior to etc. So to create like better services and like better safety and better security for its like individuals, it's very difficult for other countries to just exactly follow that because it's not a lot of countries that who would trade uh, privacy versus convenience like you know because a lot of people have quite not uh, how I would say like comfortable with like you know sharing a lot of information with like companies like for example even Facebook you can see that people are actually protesting quite against like even taking very minute details about them but there are no alternatives to Facebook yes so that's the that's the difference like you know for example you can see that People are learning that. People before did not understand what privacy is, like what data is and how they're using the data about themselves collected by these corporations to again use it back against them. But now the education level about like, you know, personal data privacy has gone up so that more and more people, the new generations are actually like not, they're very cautious about it. So that countries like China, they know that like, you know, this is to make your life better. This is to make your life much more convenient. So that mentality is a bit different outside of China about the same issue. But these privacy concerns, are they justified? Yes, because as a technology person, I would say that like, there are ways to collect your data non-invasively than collecting them invasive, invasively. For example, like, you know, I can understand like how you behaved 
by just not collecting your face by just analyzing your skeleton structure when you are moving for that i just need to have like your stick figure that's very invasive if you want to <laughs> if you want to see how my skeleton structures <laughs> so but in, if you look at data points like you know for example if i i can just give you a variable and ask you to just wear it and i can get you data about your breathing instead of me putting a radar sensor in a space and i can measure your movement and your breathing 10 meters away from you is two different things because you don't know you are not you're not getting more because i have this thing which is maybe biased around my side but i think like if you're observed all the time the chances of you doing mistakes are like less and then again because you know that genuinely like you know you've been accounted to do good so that like you supposed to do good because if i'm actually putting as a, a human cam- being as a human being because it's the consciousness right so this is a huge part if i'm if you you need to make more conscious engineers and conscious citizens if i have a garbage can and i tell i put like a fake not working camera there and i tell you that i'm watching you if you're putting the garbage into that or not people actually keep on putting garbage inside the box and how do you do that how do you actually uh ask all of the people to be that type of conscious person as you are as you want him to be i think like it starts from like going back to basics right okay because going back to basics means like as a human being like we know that the the earth is warming up the trees are getting cut and then again our sustained our lifestyles are like changing so if you are conscious individual you would be doing recycling at home you would not like you know throw stuff into the garbage or like you know you throw stuff into the road or else like you know do all those things because you are conscious about the impact and the chaos that is going to create but the biggest thing is that this thing so called thing life comes in front of us and we are busy and we have a lot of other things to take care of in our daily to basis that it's very difficult for us to just like you know think about these things that matter to the other people or the society or the community other than ourselves so it's consciousness starts from becoming not selfish so that is how i see and maybe it's my opinion but consciousness also has to be uh equal to education yes that is actually like you know where i see the biggest biggest change of china as like you know a country where like i'm also from sri lanka like about talking about things like mindfulness that you are actually like pretty mindful about yourself and about your environment you are conscious about what's happening around you and your actions and its impact but do you have those companies that are actually tapping into the education sector where they teach you how to be conscious yes there are there's a new wave of education that is going out in china like they're using different mediums for like technology as a medium again for helping kids to be more mindful at a young age because if i can tell you to meditate you maybe it's difficult for you but i can just increase your concentration by just giving putting a headset in your head measuring your eeg levels and giving you a game to play that so like they're using very different mediums for like you know kids to be more concentrated more aware about what's going on because it's it's a it's it's a very playful technique or like an engagement mechanism to them, them to be focused on the breathing to all the other things and it starts it starts like at a young age but what i'm saying is that making them more creative making them more mindful is the first thing that uh, first building block or stepping stone to move towards like you know much more better conscious community now going back to wearables because this is something that 
you do every day. Uh, one of your interesting projects has to do with Durex, right? Famous condom company. Can you please uh, tell us a little bit about your invention? Yes. So, like, I won the Global Design Challenge for Durex uh, for inventing a smart condom. So, I have the patents, like, for that technology also. So, that is actually a device that can identify people with erectile dysfunction at a very, non, again, a non-invasive way. If you look at the machinery that is getting used for identifying the blood flow to your penis and your erectile dysfunction levels, that equipment is around 40,000 RMB. And we can do the same thing for 20 RMB with the same accuracy. So because we are using smart material technology to just like do it. And uh, that is for understanding how how your blood flows to your penis and how erection happens to condom sizing, more personalized condoms. Like because it's not like one size fits all, right? So then it helps them to just understand product like what type of innovation that needs to happen there, apart from having very fancy flavored condoms to like different designs. There's much more innovation that you can do in this space. So it's more in healthcare space? It's in more healthcare space. Okay, and how is it connected to Wi-Fi? What is the process So it's just basically like, you know, there is a simple microchip there that actually transfers data into like a mobile application. And uh, that is just like, you know, the data transfer mechanism to understand, like, you know, the readings that you're getting about your uh, physical, like, uh, performance. And what's the traction for that project for you right now? So right now, just like we are in the, we are moving into the clinical trial phase because, uh, like I said, like, I love uh, slow and steady rather than just, like, quick and fast and doing something because of sake of doing something because this project has been going for two years right now to perfect the technology. Because you can actually build something and like do this thing called uh, go-to-market strategies and very quickly like creating the bus and the PR around it and then again just be the number one or be the first to the market versus like you can actually build something that actually works. That's two different uh, ways of solving problems. And I really like the latter because I really believed in problem solving. And problem solving needs to identify the solution that fits the all. Not for like, you know, I don't want to build a device that actually can only very few people can afford. So you, if you want to do proper low cost engineering, you need to actually be a very good engineer. Then you can figure out like, you know, how to engineer it in a way Absolutely, that yeah. works well and can be used by masses also. Because if you can look at all the imaging techniques that's there, because my bachelor's, I worked on uh, CT and MRI images quite a lot. So I worked on something called multimodal image fusion, which you put on CT and MRI image together. So I can see like the structural information and like, you know, information about other things through just registering two images together. So when I was doing these projects, like you can see that the machines, like if you look at a PET scan to a other kind of scanning technology, the, it's it's actually very expensive. So why why would I just spend the most amount of money and created a very expensive instrument that only very few people can afford? If if like you know it takes me way too much money to even take an image, then there's no point of that machine. So technically, the moment you make it low cost, if you look at like a very good example is actually from MIT, you can search about something called a paper microscope. Because they came up with like, you know, a microscope that's made out of paper, which is 50 cents. And that can identify like, you know, very interesting like, you know, diseases like malaria and etc. So that for me, instead of carrying like, you know, spectroscopy or a microscope to like these uh, areas where they're infected, now I can just 
take a plane and just like you know throw out this microscope so that they can take like a little blood sample and see whether they're infected or not so that is the power of technology and innovation so that you give it to masses so that like people who are actually in need is getting a solution the time that they need it fascinating so all of these projects you're working on now uh, when you're based in china now zooming out a little bit from china and into the region um, we're now seeing the uh, a certain rise in, and development in Eurasia, which is fascinating to watch. What's your vision of the region, of its future? My vision is very simple, actually. My vision is like, you know, the countries that were depending on import-export economies moving into innovation-driven economies. The communities understanding the problems in their own communities and coming up with solutions that actually work for their communities. For if you look at, like, you know, a, com- a country like Sri Lanka, And if you want to solve, like, you know, water crisis in a very simple, like a small area, importing a water purification machine there and putting it is not going to solve the problem. Because if that machine breaks, maybe that area does not have, like, the right technical ability or the support to just repair the machine. So then that machine or the investment goes to waste. Rather than that, if you can empower the individuals in the community and building the machine there, that works for them and getting the right resources, education, and the funding, and the community to support building that project is actually going to solve the problem in that community at a much higher rate than just importing solutions for problems that they have in these areas. So you can imagine like this whole Eurasia as like an example. And there, every country, there are different problems, and different communities solve the different problems in their preferred method. Maybe like, you know, understanding very localized solutions for the problems can be done by the local communities. So only thing that we need to do is that empowering them with the right education, with the right resources, so that they can come up with the technologies and the solutions that they need to solve the problem locally. So this is what I believe in, like creating innovation in local ecosystems so that they can identify the problems that's much more urgent for them to solve. And then again, coming up with the right solution for that, that may be completely different from importing something that would not work for them. What do you envision our future to be like in the next 10 years? If you could close your eyes and tell us the vision of Beeman in 10 years, what would it be? I think like, you know, my personal vision for myself is like becoming an investor at the age of 35 and empowering communities and people and uh, to just do what I'm doing. And if I look at the world, like I think my vision would be like, again, going back to basics, that engineers, designers, investors, and even the people that was belong to this ecosystem becoming much more conscious about themselves first. And then, like, they can spread the consciousness around. Because why am I keep on talking about consciousness? Because then you would know if you're learning something, you're doing something, why am I doing it? Who am I doing it for? And what is the impact of this thing? So that people would do less time-wasting stuff. People would be doing, like, you know, less not worthy innovations because i think we have enough innovations in the world what we need is inventions Mm. so we don't need innovators anymore we need inventors for that to happen going from innovation to inventing that is actually a change of mindset so you can't keep on looking at problems and changing a little thing about the wheel and expect the world to get better because we have world needs like a whole new set of solutions for problems that has not been even created yet So we are just scratching the surface. We just need to empower individuals with giving the right to education to everyone, making sure everyone actually like goes to school, knows basics, and then again 
they are actually equipped with the tool set that is needed to change i think like you know and then be giving them the ability to, to interact with information for example i i live in a perfect world where like in the future i think that people are educated enough and they have access for information and they have access for basic needs because one of the most interesting ted talks i watched recently is something called like you know giving people giving every single human being the basic income that means like what what would happen if you don't have to worry about your shelter about your food and your healthcare just these three things if every single one has these basics then they can excel and they proved it through data and showing how different states in us actually have changed by just like following this just giving them the basics and then again see how they excel and in order for us to be in that world there's has to be a lot of political will <laughs> exactly so things change things starts from change leaders and then again things starts from youth and then again they identifying what is needed for them so that they can convey the message to like elders or the leaders on top of them that who can come up with the right policies and the frameworks for these voices to be heard because it's really important that like we are we are creating for the future for us and we can't decide a future that is created by someone else so it's really important our voices are heard and second thing is that people who are leaders are taking our voices into account when they're making decisions so once that happen i think like all this is going to move forward in a really nice direction Thank you very much for coming Vivian. Thank you for being on the scholar on the really good, podcast. I had a really good time like talking to you guys and uh, I hope uh, we can continue working towards a very better future in BRI. Thank to have so. our voices heard. Yep. Thank you.